regenerative medicine today. This is John Murphy, and I'd like to welcome to this particular podcast Dr. John Kirchi. Dr. Kirchi comes to us from the Washington University School of Medicine. He's an active clinician and is also heavily involved in research programs. His specialty in terms of our discussion today relates to aneurysms. Dr. Kirchi, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Yeah, thanks very much. It's been a great time to be here. So perhaps the place to start is to just share with our audience a little bit about your interests, both from a clinical perspective, and then we can talk a little bit about your research endeavors as it relates to aneurysms. I started out interested in vascular surgery from my medical school days and continued that clinical interest through my residency and into fellowship, particularly with regard to the abdominal aneurysm, which is a peculiar clinical entity, inasmuch as we know that It can exist, and we know that at certain sizes of these aneurysms that there's really nothing we can do for them except watch them, although we know that eventually they do grow and eventually can pose a significant risk of rupture and, in fact, poses a risk in the range of up to the 10th most significant cause of death to patients over the age of 65. So it's an important clinical problem, and the only real treatment we have available for it at this point is to actually physically manipulate the aneurysm in such a way that there's no more blood flowing against that weakened wall of the aorta. We've been very interested then in my lab following on that clinical interest to develop a means to alter the natural history of the disease So when we see a small aneurysm, we can do something to prevent it from becoming a large aneurysm and therefore avoid the need for surgical intervention. So I'll show my lack of familiarity with the problem and ask, you cannot, I presume, reinforce the structure that has this weakened wall in it, or is that a correct presumption? That's correct. So that was actually what Albert Einstein had done. He had cellophane wrapping of his abdominal aortic aneurysm, and it worked for a short period of time, but eventually the ruptured aortic aneurysm was what ultimately killed Albert Einstein. So you've identified the nature of the problem and the significance of the problem. What are you exploring in terms of ways to be proactive and avoid the problem or minimize the consequences? We're right now in the process of starting a multi-center study to actually test whether or not a common antibiotic, doxycycline, which has been used for a number of years, can actually inhibit the growth of these aneurysms. But that's the end of the story. The beginning of the story is we've been working for a number of years looking at aneurysm tissue and mouse models of aortic aneurysm disease to identify that unique to this disease of blood vessels that almost all of the elastic fibers that make up a substantial portion of the aortic wall have been degraded, degenerated by the time you you get any significant dilatation of that aorta. And we found that those changes in elastin fiber seem to be related to the activity of a specific set of proteases, in particular matrix metalloproteases, such as MMP9 and MMP12, as well as MMP2, which are all pretty potent elastolytic enzymes. So knowing that, or at least having that as a hypothesis, what might one do to alleviate the problem? 
Based on that information, we started looking in pharmacy for drugs that might inhibit those particular proteases. And it turns out that around the same time we were defining this disease was related to these proteases, a gentleman by the name of Lorne Golub at SUNY was also finding that these same proteases were active in gingivitis and had found that doxycycline, given in relatively small doses, was able to alter the natural history of gingivitis by inhibiting these enzymes. And that's when we started adopting a look at doxycycline in both our animal models and doing some early clinical work to show that we can actually affect metalloproteases in the aneurysm wall. So... How does one determine that there is a small aneurysm that needs uh, some particular type of therapy? Fortunately or unfortunately, a small abdominal aneurysm is essentially an asymptomatic entity. We don't really have patients present with any symptoms referable to a small aortic aneurysm. So these have been, in the past, found strictly by serendipity. We've been looking for a gallbladder problem or an appendix problem or a colon issue, and somebody did an imaging study, an ultrasound or a CT that identified it. About five years ago now, I think it's getting on to about five years, the Major Vascular Society implemented the study called the SAVE Act, pushed this through Congress, which was the implementation of routine screening of all men when they achieve Medicare enrollment as long as they've ever smoked in their lives with a quick abdominal ultrasound to evaluate for abdominal aortic aneurysm. We finally now have some screening system in place, although the effectiveness is somewhat limited because, again, we don't have anything to actually treat these people with if the aneurysm is small. A few will be large and will need treatment right away, but the vast majority that are identified with these screening systems are small. So once we actually can develop a therapy that can be used to treat a small aneurysm, screening becomes much more important and will be likely much more rapidly adopted in the clinics across the country. So it seems to me that there's now a mechanism to identify people who could benefit by your emerging technology. It reminds me of the current debate about prostate screening and in continuing discussions about the merits of that procedure for men who are affected with prostate disease. I guess the question that comes to my mind is that Based on the screening you've done to date, what kind of incidence of findings have you realized? Well, we know that at least 8 to 10% of men over the age of 65 are going to have abdominal aortic aneurysms of some size or another. If they smoke. If they smoke, it's even higher. It's a most remarkable association with smoking. And it's one that is, again, part of what I've been interested in clinically and then translating it into the lab. And that is that smoking, even if you were a young man and smoked, say, in the military for 5, 10, 15 years and then stopped, your risk of developing an abdominal aortic aneurysm, which generally only presents after the age of 55, is still up to two to three times higher than somebody who'd never smoked in their life. 
And then if you continue smoking for 30, 40 years, and even then if you stop, you're then looking at even higher risks, again, despite having stopped the smoke exposure. So of up to eight to tenfold increase. So this is a disease that is extremely sensitive to a history of smoke exposure. And, and so the reduced rates of smoking in the country over the past decade or so are probably going to eventually show up as reduced numbers of aortic aneurysms in the future. That being said, it's still, even if you've ever smoked, your risk is still up, which is peculiar. And the numbers you just shared with us show that there is a significant population potentially affected by this. That's, that's very interesting. So I understand that you initiated a clinical study. Perhaps you could just highlight the major aspects of that. So this is exciting. We've received funding from the National Institutes for Aging to perform a multi-center trial of roughly 300 patients randomized to doxycycline or placebo, all of which have small abdominal aortic aneurysms between three and a half and five centimeters. And then we're going to follow them for roughly two years. And based on that, we're hoping that we can show, finally, that something we can do for these small abdominal aortic aneurysms to reduce their growth rate and hopefully prevent people from needing surgery. That's a very significant outcome if your hypothesis is verified. I find that very interesting. So, Dr. Kirchi, I believe that you're actually doing some work to better understand the, the tissue mechanics and the, the cellular behavior that affects these aneurysms. Is it appropriate to just share a bit of that with us, please? Absolutely. We've been excited about trying to identify why this disease occurs in the vessels in which it very commonly affects. It's remarkably regionalized to the internal iliac artery and the abdominal aorta, but doesn't affect some very nearby adjacent vessels that even branch from those vessels themselves. And that peculiar distribution we felt was likely related to or potentially related to the differentiation phenotype of the vascular smooth muscle cells, which populate that very segment of the aorta and those specific adjacent vessels. And so what we've done, and this has been rather challenging, has been to obtain smooth muscle cells both from aneurysms, from patients who have normal abdominal aortas that we define at the time of kidney transplantations. These are donors of kidneys, so we're able to obtain some abdominal aortic tissue from them. And then we also have a second control for those, and that's carotid plaque. And the reason we selected that as a control is because all abdominal aortic aneurysms have luminal intimal atherosclerotic disease. And so we wanted to make sure that we weren't just defining a distinction of atherosclerotic disease versus normal tissue. And what we've done is we've looked at those on a fairly broad gene array for expression analysis and have determined that we can very easily define, based on approximately 200 genes, which cells are from aneurysm tissue, which cells are not. And using a lot of relatively sophisticated statistical analysis, we're fairly confident that this is a common phenomenon from these. We're up to about 60 total specimens that we've analyzed and more that are in the process of being analyzed to confirm this. So now that we define that these cells are in fact unique, we then took these cells 
to find out whether or not the defining feature of aneurysms, the loss of aortic elastin, might be related to the particular phenotype of these cells. And so we labeled insoluble elastin with tritium and then placed our cells on those in cell culture. And we can see that the aneurysm-derived smooth muscle cells will degrade more than double the amount of elastin that a normal aortic smooth muscle cell will degrade under the same conditions. And so these cells not only are unique, but they're almost certainly participating in the disease process as we can see it and develop. So might this pathway that you're following lead to a non-invasive or a minimally invasive screening technique? I don't know that it will necessarily relate to screening, but it certainly suggests that potentially just inhibiting the enzymes while a good start, actually replacing the cells in the aortic wall with something that may be less prone to promoting the process of aneurysmal degeneration, but rather promote a process of regeneration of the aortic matrix, may be a very interesting potential pathway to follow in the future. So I know there's great progress and great debate about how you inject cells and get them to go where you want to go. Again, if this hypothesis holds true, how would you clinically implement this? Well, because of the way an aneurysm forms, it generally has a very thick layer of thrombus material on its luminal surface, which would make it very difficult to deliver anything from the luminal side. But delivering something to the adventitial side of a aorta through laparoscopic techniques, for example, would be quite straightforward and uh, may provide an opportunity to deliver something relatively locally and alter the natural history of that small aneurysm. Very interesting. So, Dr. Kirchi, I'd like to thank you for joining us today to share with us this exciting work both in the laboratory and in your clinical studies. Best wishes as you and your team continue to explore these issues and the findings that you're seeking to realize. So as we conclude this podcast, I remind our listeners that you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute that sponsors this podcast series. And until we meet again with another interesting interview, best wishes to all our listeners. Thank you. Thank you.